You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, thanks for having me. Um, how many of you were here when Rod did this in 2003 and, and heard it? So I can't, I can't even tell you how honored I am to do. I think Gil in one of his notes to us put a, a rehash or a recapitulation of what Rod did or, or a reaffirmation of what Rod did in 2003. I am so honored to be here and do this. The story as I remember it, um, I was a student of Rod's, I think from 1995 to 1998 at Concordia University in Irvine. I served as his TA for several years. Um, I like to say that I, when I was at Concordia, I was technically, I think, a religion and philosophy major, but I actually majored in Rod Rosenblatt. I took as many classes as I could. In fact, I made up classes to take with Rod. I'd look through the catalog and say, well, there's not a class on analytic philosophy. I bet Rod could do that, and we'd do an independent study. Or I bet there's, there's not a class on comparative views of the Lord's Supper. I bet Rod could do that, and we'd write an independent study class on it. And that just happened for three years. And at the beginning of the book, Being Dad, I say that, you know, from Rod during that time, I learned a lot about theology, I learned a lot about philosophy, but I learned even more about what it meant to be a man and to be a dad. Um, those messages weren't as overt as the lectures on theology and philosophy, but I definitely got them and gleaned them from just being around him and from... Um, he would do these, anytime Rod was lecturing on theology, you'd always get these 30-second sort of excursus on whatever he was worked up about that day, and a lot of times it had to do with sort of subjects that meant a lot to me, like what it meant to be a good dad, what it meant to be a man. Um, I say that I probably listened to those excursus uh, more than a lot because I had kids by the time I was in college, or I had a kid, and then by the time I graduated, two. And so his messages about being dad meant a lot to me. And what he taught um, really shook my world. My own dad died when I was two years old, and I grew up without a, a father. Um, so a lot of my impressions of what it meant to be a man and be a, a dad came from the, the fathers of my friends um, and or my grandfather and or my uncle and that type of thing. And the one thing I, I remembered um, going into this is that all of my friends had fathers whose dads um, we're all very active in their lives. In fact, a lot of them did a good job about involving me in sort of their camping trips and whatnot. Um, but they were all the head disciplinarian in the house, every single one of them. They were all sort of the wait till your father gets home type of father, where when the kids had been going crazy all day long in the house, dad would get home and everybody would line up for their beating and their spanking. And that was just sort of the norm. So when I got to Concordia and I heard Rod talk, you know, in the exact opposite way about what it meant to be a father, being the mouthpiece of grace, being the rescuer to his children, that type of thing, I paid close attention. Um, I had graduated in 1998. My family and I, after doing a couple of things, we moved up to northern Nevada, where I was working for the city of Carson City for about a decade. I'm raising my kids there. It was a great place to raise our three children. Lots of outdoor activities. If you've ever been to Carson City, it's right at the base of Lake Tahoe. So mountain biking, hiking, fishing, the whole nine yards. Um, and I remember one day my friend Aaron, and I think this was a little bit later. That lecture was in 2003. I think my friend Aaron emailed me a link to the audio in about 2005 or 2006 um, of when good fathers die, it's always too soon. And I sit, sat down um, and listened to it and broke into tears. I just couldn't even keep myself together because what Rod had done for me in that lecture, um, for a lot of people, that's the first time they had heard anything like, like, what, like his message. For me, it wasn't the first time, but it was the first time I had heard it all put together into one part, into one complete piece. Um, and it blew me away. It really justified um, the way I had been trying to raise my kids. Um, I sat down, I listened to it a couple more times, and I think on the third or fourth time, I had my oldest son sit down with me and listen to it. Um, and by the time we're done with that, I remember calling Rod up and being on the phone with him and saying, you don't, you don't know what you've done for me here. And he probably did actually know. Um, and then uh, some years later, I came to work at Concordia University as a 
part-time professor and full-time associate uh, dean and reconnected with Rod in a big way. And I remember, I think it was in 2012, I, my whole life from that point on, this is maybe a bit of an exaggeration, maybe it's not, I had, uh, with my kids especially, I had tried to sort of live up to that message. Um, I don't mean that in a legalistic way, I mean it in sort of a refreshing way. Because when you actually have as your mindset the gospel of Christ Jesus and how that affects people generally through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, it's it's very freeing, right? I don't have to be, I'm not responsible for um, their feelings of whether they're accepted by God or not. The gospel takes care of that and that frees you up. And when you see as your sort of center point proclaiming that gospel to those people that God has placed close in your life, there's a lot of freedom in that. And I thought many people needed to hear about it. And I remember setting a meeting with Rod um, with the, I actually like called up and said, you know, we've set a time and everything. And I think I brought coffee and I had this whole sort of plan laid out. I was going to try to argue him into writing a book about this. Um, he wasn't, he doesn't, I, I think he's a great writer, but he doesn't always like to do a lot of it. He focuses on his outlines and bibliographies and resources that he can provide to other people who want to write and study and become academics. Um, so I knew this was going to be a bit of a push, and I think I took almost like 45 minutes in trying to argue my bullet points with him. This is why you should do it. This would be the audience. Da, da, da. And he sat there and patiently listened and just sort of shook his head through the whole thing. And it was kind of like a, there was a moment at the end where he was kind of like, are you done? And I said, yeah, I'm done. That's my whole case. And he said, no, you should write it. And um, I was kind of blown away by that. I didn't really see myself as the expert on this thing. Um, I was very proud of my children and the way they were churning out at that time. Um, but I uh, wasn't quite sure I would be the guy to do it. But he was confident in me, and his confidence in me uh, eventually equaled my own confidence in doing it. And so I spent the next couple of years um, researching and using Rod's research and adding to it as much as I could. And the end product is this book here called Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. This is the second edition now with the new fancy pants cover and everything. Um, the book for us is published through our publishing house, New Reformation Publications, and it's been a great success for us. Um, and I, I try not to measure that just in terms of books sold. I try to measure it in terms of the emails I've gotten from people saying how this has changed the, their perspective on being a dad um, for the better. Um, and I'm appreciative of that and, uh, and really humbled by it. So today, um, really what I want to do today in, in two parts, I'm hoping we can take breaks for people, as Rod likes to say, um, we don't practice sanctification by bladder control, hopefully. So um, we can take a break in between here. But in two parts, um, I want to sort of paint a picture for you, first of all, um, and start by setting the stage of what it looks like to be a masculine man and a good dad, and then also set up why we need them, and maybe even talk about the fact that so many of them are lacking in our society and what the ramifications and repercussions of that are. The, sec the uh, second part, um, I'll go through a little bit um, some of the topics and some of the points in the book. Um, as part of that first stage, I want to go over a story that Rod did with you guys, a, a parable Rod did with you guys back when he was here, the prodigal son, because it serves as the center of the book. It serves as the, the center point of the argument, and the book constantly references back to it. And then in the last part, hopefully have time and for some questions and answers and certainly have time for Rod to tell some of his father stories. Um, one of the greatest things about being dad are the number of stories that are in it. Um, there, I'd say at least a third of the book was written by people other than me. Um, there's stories in there from Rod. There's stories in there from every good father I've ever met. There's stories in there from guys that have told stories about their father, guys I only met once. Um, or in there. My children wrote some stories that are in there. My wife even wrote a story about why women need good dads. Um, the stories really make the book in a lot of ways. So I've been, um, we'll talk a little bit about how you can get a hold of this early. I think it's in your bookstore, I was told. It is. It's it's okay. Book, book okay. All right. Good? Party on. Party on. You guys, we all need to wake up a little bit. A little more. Everybody take a sip, sip of coffee. There we go.
I'm happy to take questions as we go, too. I, I love a little uh, Q&A. So this is what I want to do. I'm going to ask a couple questions to start out, and then I'm going to give you some uh, scary data. Um, I tried not to fill the book full of sociological data, but at the very beginning, it's important to sort of set the stage of why this is such an important thing. Maybe I'll do that the other way. So I'm going to start with the scary data, and then maybe we can get into some of the good news. You may or may not be aware, um, and it depends on where I go. Some places I go, people are very aware of some of these statistics. Other places where sort of family lives are in pretty good shape, um, they're not as aware. I like to say when I teach being dad in big cities or in very rural communities, um, people very much believe the data. When I teach being dad in South Orange County, um, where it's very affluent, people don't believe it so much. But you may or may not be aware that 43% um, of children in America grow up in a home where there is no father. Um, that's defined as no consistent father influence in the home. They're not even narrowing that down to just no biological dad. Um, the data would accept a non-biological father who is in the home consistently. Uh, the data also shows that the really scary thing about that is that there are multiple non-consistent fathers and father figures in those homes that rotate in and out fairly constantly when there's no consistent father in the home. Um, the sociological data that ties to this is pretty f terrifying. 63% of all youth, youth suicides, when I use the term uh, youth, I'll, I go with um, what a lot of the sociologists do are young adults, 17 to 25 in that area. Young adult suicides, youth suicides. 63% of those occur from children who grew up in fatherless homes. Now, that may not be um, very scary to us because we may not think that the suicide rate is very high. Um, but let me tell you, serving as for five years as associate dean at Concordia University in Irvine, let me dispel you of the myth that the current suicide rate among 17 to 25-year-olds is not high. Um, the accomplishment rate in women is not that high. The accomplishment in young men is much higher. And the suicidality rate um, across the board for youth between the ages or young adults between the ages 17 to 25 is somewhere in the neighborhood of the high 30s to 40 percent. And these are people that uh, have an actual suicidality event at least once a year. Now that's um, in the psychological circles that I ran in while I was at Concordia, that was defined fairly specifically. That didn't just mean that somebody got dumped by their boyfriend or girlfriend and said, geez, I'm going to kill myself. It, it literally, in order to be considered a suicidality or to somebody be considered suicidal, they had to not only express the intent to, in their own life, but they had to express to somebody that they had a plan on how they were going to do it and show that they had the means for carrying out that plan. So fairly in-depth. Um, some, some of the statisticians uh, believe that this number is only climbing, and it's climbing. They're trying to figure out why. Um, I don't think it's too hard to link some of that, at least to the number of those children who grew up in fatherless homes. 90% of all runaways um, are from fatherless homes. 85% of all diagnosed sort of, uh, we used to call them behavioral issues in school. Now I think we'd call them like um, developmental issues like ADD, ADHD, that type of thing are from children in fatherless homes. A staggering 80% of convicted young adult rapists are from fatherless homes. Now, oftentimes I do this and people say, well, that's out there. That's outside the doors of our church. That doesn't really influence us in the church. And I say, ha, hold on a second. That's absolutely not true. Every mainline denomination is in decline. Every mainline denomination is losing members. This trend is now even spilling over into the megachurch scene and the non-mainline denomination. Um, the group of young adults that have been labeled the nuns is growing, and it's almost growing at an exponential rate. Some people think those young adults are just becoming more honest. Um, but the fact is that the church, as we know it, is losing members, right? It's losing adherence to the faith. Now, when I say this, I always try to be careful. I, am an hon I honestly believe that God will persevere his church until he comes again, um, but that doesn't mean that we, we want people to willy-nilly leave, right, and to walk away from the faith. We want all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So how do we keep people in the church? How do we keep people in the faith? 
In the 1990s, the Swiss performed a study as part of their normal census uh, study that was later followed up by uh, the UK, especially in portions of the UK, sort of uh, southern portions, where they too did some studies as part of their census uh, process. And what they were trying to determine, it wasn't an expressly qu a Christian set of questions. They were actually just trying to determine that if a child grew up in a particular faith um, and did they persist in that faith into adulthood? And if they did, um, who was the main sort of faith hander over when they were a child? Or who was responsible for bringing them to the faith and keeping them in the faith? So if you put it in Christian terms, the question kind of goes, were, were the children, Christ, these people Christians when they were children? Who was responsible for bringing them to church, bringing them to the baptismal font, bringing them to hear the word of Christ? And did they persist in the faith into adulthood? And by the time they're talking adulthood, they're talking late 20s, early 30s, which statistically is when the nuns are leaving the faith now and saying they're never coming back. It's something like 60% of uh, all people that are 26 to 28. Um, climbing, climbing, climbing. So the, they were asking, was it both mom and dad that brought them to church? Was it mom only that brought them to church? Was it dad only that brought them to church? Was it some other third party, an uncle or a grandparent or something like that? And what they found, especially in Switzerland and, and doubled up in the UK, what they found really blew them away, the researchers too. And then as Christian communities got a hold of it, it blew those people that got a hold of it away, although it was sort of like a flash in a pan and it went away, even though it's pretty staggering. So this is the part of the lecture where, that I call a game show. Um, so you have to tell me how many, what percentage of the children do you think persisted in the faith into adulthood if it was mom and dad's joint effort to bring them to the faith as children? What percentage do you think stayed in the faith into adulthood? Half, fifty percent, less than how you got to give me a number. Thirty-five. Higher, lower, higher, lower. Anybody want to go lower than 35 or higher than 50? 75. We've got the, op the optimists are at the back table. That's weird. The optimists are usually at the front table. Hey, anybody want to go lower than 35? Yeah. Isn't there some sort of prize normally associated with Yeah, there is. You have a prize right here. Bam. Tried to stump me. Not going to work. Okay. The number is uh, 33%. So 35, you were pretty much dead on. And that fits with the normal data, right? That, fits, that actually fits really well with our current data regarding the number of children who are raised in the faith who stay in the church and the number of children who are raised in the faith who leave the church, right? It's at around 35% uh, stay um, and right around 60 or so leaving, right? 60, 55 leaving, right around there. So that works pretty well. Um, what do we think the percentage was if mom only was the one bringing them to church as little kiddos? Which was my situation, my mother and my grandma. What do you think? 5%. I thought you were guys were the optimists. Anybody want to go to higher? Not half? Not half. I'm going to say 50. 5-0? Okay. Less than 33%. It's actually, um, it's actually around two to three percent. Yeah, it's extremely low. This includes uh, women and, and men. Yeah, this includes boys and girls. Maybe say it that way. Um, believe it or not, the reason that it's as high as two to three percent is because it includes girls too. <laughs> if you were just to, if you were just to survey the boys, it's very close to zero. Okay, what if dad only is the one bringing him to church? Dad only. 15. Higher or lower? Higher or lower than 15? 25. 40. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, the high end, the low end was 65%. The high end was 75%. So I always ask the question, if there's any pastors in the room, I always ask the question, what the hell are we doing to keep the men in the church? Because if you keep the men in the church, the, the, the data says you're going to keep the kids. If you don't keep the men in the church, the data says you're not going to keep the kids. Um, the mom and dad together, if the 
Yeah, and ask me why I think it's mom and dad together is lower than just dad. <laughs> because I think this is all con- this is conjecture on my part, but this is conjecture after several years of study on this thing. Um, I think that it's it's lower than dad only, mainly because a lot of times when it's mom and dad together coming, dad is being drugged along like one of the kids. No, no. What you we'll get we'll get to we'll get to the what we need to do. What we need to do is we need to tell dads to be the driving force um, in the home for this, because that was actually what the survey was asking: who was the driving force in your home? Okay. So it's not just who was in the car. No, it's who who was the driving force. Not. I love it. <laughs> All right. So, uh, is it important for men to be uh, to be masculine, to be the heads of their house, to be good dads, to be sort of the driving force uh, force in their homes for the faith of their children? I think it is. But I always start out this lecture by asking three what I think are sort of central questions that I think we should all ask. Um, first one here: How do we expect our young boys to want to grow up to be? Gracious, kind, powerful, merciful, capable, forgiving men. If they've never seen or we've never shown them specifically men who fit that bill. That's a very important question if we acknowledge that 43% of the children we know are growing up in homes where there is no father. And if we acknowledge that they're not going to find those images on TV or in the media anywhere. And if we acknowledge that nine out of ten times, even when there's nobody in the home, nobody's stepping up outside of the home to be that picture either. Uh, Number two question. How do we expect our young boys to want to grow up to be gracious, kind, powerful, merciful, capable, forgiving fathers if they've never seen fathers who fit this bill? You may or may not know that the number of um, what are sort of sometimes negatively termed term millennials um, who are deciding to go, believe they're deciding to go their entire lives childless is, is on the rise dramatically. In other words, the, the generation that comes after my generation on the whole doesn't have a big desire to become parents. And this is actually more true of the men than it is of the women, even though it's, it's shockingly high in the women too. So when I'm at churches, this third question in my mind is sort of the clincher, and it's the big one to ask. How do we expect our young boys, or our children in general for that matter, to believe in a God who is called Father, a man, and saves through the work of another man who we call his son, if they've never seen a father or a man who is either good or described as such? We do this every Sunday. We bring our kiddos into church and we talk about these men who are gracious and kind and loving and strong and powerful and who look out for them and love them and protect them and save them. And then they go home and they've never seen a man that looks anything like that, even by way of analogy. How do we expect them to believe it and persist in it? So I like to ask as a part of this, what does it mean to be this man? What does it mean to be this father? Even what does it mean to be this picture, this masculine picture? I think it's very important that when we start talking about these issues, when we start talking about um, the man being the head of his house, um, the mouthpiece of grace, um, being strong, being masculine, I think it's very important that we first start out by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I'm asking for men to go out of this rooms with their chest, puffed, chest puffed up and go out into the world into their homes and be blowhards and jerks to their wives and to the people in their lives. It doesn't mean simple physical prowess and stature. And if you work out and if you're strong and if you can bench press more than you weigh and all that kind of nonsense, which I obviously cannot. What I think it does mean is it being, means being kind merciful and gracious. I do think being powerful is part of it, but I think that that power comes through the force of the proclamation of the gospel and a gospel-oriented character. 
I think that power is most adeptly shown through showing mercy and showing grace. I do think being strong is part of it. And I think part of that strength comes out by just being capable and being willing. Being willing to be there. Being willing to be a dad. Being willing to be in the lives of those people that God has called you to be in. I think that strength comes through the power to forgive and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to other sinners just like you. So what does this man look like? Uh, one of the things that Rod taught me when I was first taking philosophy classes is that there's this concept um, in the philosophy of language called a denotative definition. I like to, when I teach this to to the kiddos at Concordia, I like to say it's sort of the, the way of defining something by pointing to it. In other words, if you had never seen a chair and you were to ask me what a chair was, I could say to you, well, it's this thing with four legs, a seat, and a back, and when you lower your hiney on it, it supports your weight so that you don't fall onto the ground. And you may or may not be able to, c- to create this mental picture of a chair in your head after my description. But if I say, oh, you've never seen a chair, that's one right there. You can sort of grab it and take it and sit in it and you can fully experience what a chair is and thereby have a better understanding of a chair. The same thing also works um, when we ask maybe what God is like or what a good father is like. Some of the best ways to do it is to point to somebody and say, oh, it's like him over there. It's like that. So, accordingly, when I when I do this, I like to start out as Rod did when he was here in in uh, 2003 by pointing to what uh, a story that Christ used in a way of pointing to a man when he was trying to explain what God the Father was like, and that's the story of the prodigal son. So I'm going to tell that for you today, but I like to start out by saying if you've ever heard this story and you're a husband and a father specifically if you're a father and you've listened to it and thought yeah that makes a lot of sense i don't think you've actually heard the story the story of the prodigal son was in christ's time so countercultural that most of the commentators i read when i was studying up on it believed that the people in the audience were most likely picking up rocks to stone him when he first told just the part of the story about when the younger son takes the money and runs. It was so countercultural. Now, we miss this somewhat in our day because our children are on the whole kind of petulant and we're sort of permissive with them. And so this isn't a big, oftentimes not a big deal to us, although it should be. Right? So what, how does the story go? It goes like this. There was a man who had two sons. I can relate to this quite a bit because I have two sons. He had an older son who was very conscientious, who sort of always did the right thing, was always around at his father's side, helping him in the fields, managing the servants, managing the crops, managing the livestock, making sure that the house was running as it should be. He was sort of his father's right-hand man. I have one of those too. So I can relate to this. The father had a younger son. The younger son was perhaps not as obedient. Well, it didn't so much care about the household and how the family was going quite as much as the older son did. And one day, this father, who was known by all in his community to be a good father, to be an upstanding man, maybe even to be a masculine man. Um, kind of, I'll talk about the picture in a minute. But he, he owned property, obviously. He had servants, the story tells us later. He was a man of some means, likely respected in his community. His younger son came to him one day and said, Father, I want you, no, 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 I need you to give me half of everything that will be mine once you're dead and give it to me now because I have plans that don't involve you, that don't involve my brother, and that don't involve this place or this house, and i got to go do them. So give me half of what's mine. Now at the outset, that may make a lot of sense to us because commonly how inheritance works in our day and age, if there is any inheritance left after a 10-year depression, um, how inheritance works in our day and age is that we sort of split it up amongst whoever's left, right? 
the wife is still alive, she gets some, the kids get some. If wife and dad are both gone, it gets split up among the kids. But in his day and in his culture, we have to remember that this is the younger son. There wouldn't have been anything that was his after the father's death. Everything would have gone to the older son, and it would have been the older son's job to decide whether or not he wanted to take care of his younger brother for the rest of his life and let him stay on the house. And in all likelihood, he would have, because that's sort of what the culture dictated would happen at the time. So first off, we need to know that this younger son is for asking, asking for something that he claims is his, but that's actually not his, that actually belongs to the older brother in, in whole. This kind of explains at the end of the story why the, why the older brother is so pissed off, right? Won't even come into the party, right? So what is he saying to the father? He's saying, father, I'm not content with you being alive and taking care of me right now. I want you dead because you're worth more to me dead than alive. In his father's culture, there was no easy way for the father to give in to this request from the younger son. He couldn't just go to the bank and pull out half of what's in his checking account and tell him to go have a good time, let mom and I know when you're headed home. There was none of that. In order for him to give half of everything he owned, everything he owned would have had to go up for Hawk. His house, his land his crops, his livestock, his possessions in his home, some of his servants. These things would have had to have been sold. And in order for them to be sold and to be given away to the younger son, the father in some way would have had to divested himself of his power as the head of his household. Would have essentially had to have had himself declared dead. So thus the son is really saying to him, I wish you were dead. Half of this stuff you own is worth more to me than your life is, than your reputation is, than my family is, than our community and our culture is. So if you've ever heard this story and you've not heard it fully explained and you go, oh man, I don't know if I do that or not, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't give in to this request. You'd have to, if you say maybe I do that, you'd have to imagine yourself going and signing documents at the courthouse to give possession of everything that you own, your car, your retirement accounts, your home, and splitting it up between your two kids. And we get an indication at the end of the story this is exactly what happened when the, old, when the father looks at the older brother and says, everything I have is yours. That's exactly what happened. He declared himself dead. He had his possessions split up. Half of it was sold and given to the younger son. Half of everything he owned was sold and given to the younger son. And the son goes off to what's represented in this picture on the left-hand side to what we're only told is the far-off country. We're not even really told at the in the middle part of the story. Every good story has a beginning, middle, and end. We're not even really told in the middle part of the story what he does with that money. Right? We say it's left for the end when the brother tells us what he's been doing with the money. You get the sense through this whole story that the brother's been keeping tabs on this long-lost brother the whole time. I could actually envision that with my two sons, to be honest with you. could totally envision that one. So he goes off into the far-off country, and eventually he runs out of money. He becomes hungry. The far-off country falls into a famine in a time of Great Depression. And we're, we're told that he becomes so hungry and so distraught and so destitute during this time that he needs to find a job. And his job hunt leads him to a pig farm, right? And he sees maybe a help wanted sign in this pig farm and he goes to the proprietor of the pig farm and he says, I'll take the job. And the job is essentially to go in with the pigs, in with the slop and to stay with the pigs and to make sure the pigs have food and water to feed the pigs. Okay, now, there's an important point to note here. This younger son has already let go of everything that his father's culture held as good. He's disrespected his father. He's disrespected his family. He's really stolen from the family. And this point of eating with the pig or feeding the pigs is not insignificant because it really in the story represents 
the younger son letting go of maybe that last connection to he had, that he had to everything his father held dear. Because in the religion of his father's household, in order to abide by that religion, you did not eat, not only did you not eat swine, but you didn't cavort with them either. You didn't spend time with them. You didn't touch them. You didn't come in contact with them. Otherwise, you would be unclean. And so going into this pig farm and taking on this job feeding pigs and living with the pigs and slopping around with the pigs, he's letting go of that last connection that he has to his father. He's utterly letting go. And even at this, with this new job that required him to to forsake his father one final time, he's still not making enough to eat and he still finds himself to be hungry and he becomes so hungry that he that the text tells us that he desires to eat that with which the pigs were fed. In other words, he wants to eat pig slop. Now, I'm no pig farmer. I'm not a farmer at all. But I do watch Dirty Jobs. <laughs> and there's this Dirty Jobs episode where Mike Rowe goes uh, to this uh, pig slop factory outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And basically what it is, is it's this place where all of the leftover slop that goes into the food trash cans from the casino buffets is brought into these big trucks and put into this huge stinky vat full of slop that they then take out to the pigs and slosh all over the pigs and the pigs go hog wild um, eating it, right? It's disgusting. And so he's sitting there uh, with the pigs He's disgraced, he's distraught, and a thought occurs to him. Now see, this is a thought that occurs to all of us at some point, even when we're at our most destitute. And it's this thought, there's got to be something I can do to get my father to love me again. We poor, miserable sinners, we think like that all the time, don't we? Christ comes and he saves us, because not because we've done anything, but, but because we're sinners. And we still say, there's got to be something I can do to get him to love me. When he's saying, I do love you and I died for you already. The son does the same thing. There's got to be something I can do to get my father to take me back. He says, I know. I know what I'll do. Surely he won't take me back as a son. Revealing that he really knows nothing about his father. Surely he won't take me back as his son. But maybe... Maybe he'd take me back as a servant. Better translation, honestly, slave. Because even my father's servants have more bread than they could possibly eat. And so he starts concocting this confession, this weak confession. His repentance, as Rod says, is like all of our repentance. It's half-assed. It's really meant at getting bread in his belly and nothing more. And he says, I know I will go back to my father's home and I will say, Father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. I know I'm not worthy to be called your son, but please take me on as a mere servant in your home. And he begins the long journey home from the far off land. That's where he is in the middle of the story with the picture. I love that picture specifically because it hits, I think it portrays the son. Um, We usually call his weakest point you know, the point at which he was at the rock bottom, like he's an alcoholic or something, which he probably was. Um, but this portrays him at his weakest point. I think this is where he shows his false repentance the most and where he practices his confession that he thinks is going to win his father's favor. <clears throat> but in, if you look in the picture, there's actually something behind his head, dove, right? Representing the Holy Spirit. That's actually the thing driving him on there. So while he thinks he's actually found a way to get his father to do the right thing, what's the father been doing all this time? Well, the story doesn't absolutely tell us. But we get a clue from the text. Because there's this line in the text that if you've heard it and it hasn't broken you down, you maybe haven't heard it. He says, And while he was yet a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him, and ran toward him. I like to ask the question in these gatherings, how the heck did his father see him while he was a long way off? How do we think that happened? Do we think he was just going about his daily business, bossing servants around, and, I don't know, like sweeping the floor, and he happened to look over his shoulder, and there his son was coming up the road? 
No. He'd been waiting on him the whole time. This is where the book that Rod used the most and I used the most, Helmut Tillich's The Waiting Father, comes in. You know, I can imagine the father sitting on some high balcony of his, of his manor looking down the road that leads to his home and sitting there day after day, scanning the road, scanning the horizon for the return of his son who he loves. He had already disgraced himself in his community by giving in to this petulant son. And I think he was willing to disgrace himself even more by being a loafer and sitting around on that balcony day after day after day because there was one thing that was important to him. There was one thing that meant the world to him and that's the return of his son. So he scans the road and as the son is approaching the house practicing his confession, the father sees him. He has compassion on him and he runs towards him. And if you want to know when I was talking about what it means to be a masculine man where I got sort of the descriptors that I used of, of uh, kind, strong, merciful, gracious, powerful. Um, I get them from the story of the prodigal son. Because in this part of the story, you see the father's strength. And you see his father's strength expressed by two things. The commands that he doles out to the servants and the grace that he so shows on his son. So the son approaches and he runs towards the son and he embraces him so hard, I think, that he virtually knocks him over. And the son begins to try to break out with his confession that he believes is going to win his father over to his side. He says, Father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. And the father breaks in and turns around, looks at the servants and he says, Quick, bring some shoes and put them on his feet. And the son tries again, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father interrupts him again, turns around to the servants and say, Quick, bring my robe and put it on him. Quick, bring a ring and put it on his finger. Quick, and here's the big one. Go kill the fattened calf and invite all the neighbors who probably hate me because I've gone against everything our culture says is right about raising children and I've given in to this jerk of a son but I love him and invite those people to the party. Why are these things significant? <clears throat> A lot of these are lost on us, to be honest with you. The shoes on the feet, shoes have to be on his feet. They have to be on his feet. Why? Because this son thinks he's coming back as a servant, as a slave in the home. Servants in the home walk around barefoot. Okay? So if the father was going to give in to his confessional request and make him a servant, he'd have stayed barefoot. But the father doesn't want anything to do with his confessional request. The father doesn't want anything to do with his deal. The father wants his son back and he wants his son back now. So shoes are placed on his feet to signify that he's a member of the family and not a servant. In the home, the family wears shoes. In the home, the servants go barefoot. So shoes are put on his feet. The robe is covered. He's covered with his own father's robe. Most of the commentators believe this would have been the father's sort of ceremonial robe, wedding robe, party robe. You know, the, the, the robe that those in the, in the other parable of Christ are cast out of the wedding for not putting on that same kind of robe. Um, reminiscent of the robe of righteousness from Isaiah. You know, that covering that when God looks at us, we're covered with the robe of Christ and he sees Christ and not us in our sin. That robe, significant because this robe would have been so noticeable that if the son were walking around in the house with his father's robe like he was going to do in just the next few minutes, any neighbor that might pass by the house and looked in the house and saw the son in the robe would probably think that the son was the father because he's wearing the robe of the head of the household. Now here's the one that when I first heard it was the real kicker for me. Put a ring on his finger. Again, most of the commentators I read believe this is supposed to represent a signet ring or a signature ring. That may or may not be a big deal to you. So what? He can sign documents with this ring. Yeah, you know what documents he could sign? He could sign over the rest of the belongings that, that everyone at that household still owns. Whatever's left of the house, whatever left of the property, what's ever left of the cattle, what's ever left of the servants, what's ever left of the dishware. 
He could use that ring, go into town, sign a contract with that ring, and sell everything out from underneath them again. And we know he's already prone to it. And yet the, the father puts the ring on his finger. Now oftentimes, in fact, if memory serves, Rod said that we LCMS Lutherans don't use this parable a lot because there's no atonement in it, right? That, um, in other words, nothing had to die in order for the son to be accepted back in the family. When I was studying this, I, wrote, I read uh, Robert Capon's uh, prod- uh, Parables of Grace. And in his explanation of the prodigal son in Parables of Grace, Capon uh, points out that that's not exactly true. Something did have to die in order for life to go back to normal-ish. And that's the fattened calf. And we go, so what? So they went out and killed one of their calves. No. Uh, they would have gone out and killed the most valuable thing they still owned. That fattened calf would have literally been their most valuable remaining piece of property. Akin to my own dear son. Okay? The most valuable thing they own is killed, is put on the spit, and the people that hate the family from the neighborhood, from the culture, because of his countercultural way of parenting, are invited to the party to celebrate the return of this person that they all can't stand. And they throw a party. And the party's going on for a while. And uh, finally, we re-enter as we approach the end of the story, the older brother. Now, what's been going on with the older brother this time, all this time? Well, he's been doing what sort of these self-righteous older brothers tend to do. He's been working, right? The self, As Rod said in 2003, the self-righteous are always great workers. Okay, So he's been out in the field doing what he believes he's supposed to do. I like to say that I think he probably stayed out in the field 45 minutes longer that day than he normally did because he heard the party and knew what was going on. Just to sort of dig in just a little bit more. I'm going to come in a little extra sweaty. I'm going to come in a little extra dirty. It's going to be a longer day than normal. And he comes back to where the party is going on, but he will not go in. He stands at the border of the party. And I kind of envision him sitting there like, this smug look on his face, just staring down everybody that's having a good time. And eventually he sees a servant and he asks a question to which he already knows the answer. He says, it's a, I think it's one of the stupidest questions in all of Holy Scripture. What's going on here? And the servant says, good news. Your brother has returned. The anger, like in a cartoon, the anger level has gone from the shoulders to the chin. Your father has killed the fattened calf. The anger level has gone from the chin to the forehead. And he's invited all of our neighbors to have a party and the steam blew out the top. He's pissed. He's livid. He knew this was all going on, but to hear somebody say it drove him to the edge. Why don't you come into the party? No, go get my dad. And eventually the father comes out and the son just lays into him. The father quite honestly says, Son, your brother has returned. Come to the party. Have a good time with us. Let's celebrate. He's home. And you have to listen to the brother's words here because they're very specific. He looks at the father and says, You gotta be kidding me. This son of yours who has devoured our property and our money by cavorting with prostitutes and by drink, he returns and you kill the only thing of value we have left and you throw a party for the people that hate you? Are you crazy? I thought you were uncorked when you let him go the first time. Now I know you're nuts. And the father very quietly very patiently, I think following the words of C.F.W. Walther, um, when he's referring to what a pastor's job is with law and gospel, he says the pastor's job is to know when the law has been applied enough and at that moment to jump in with the resurrecting voice of the gospel. And that's what this father does here. There's going to be a little law needed to bring this older brother around. You see, the, the son, the younger son, when he came back, whether it was a half-assed contrition and confession or not, 
there was no self-righteousness left in him. Yes, he was trying to make a deal, but that deal was from a point of desperation. This older brother, he's not broken. He thinks he's in the right. And there's nothing so dangerous when you stand before a holy God as believing that you're in the right. So the father says to him, Son, listen here. You need to know the straight scoop here. You have always been with me. And if we're going to be honest about it, everything that I have actually belongs to you. So stop. Come into the party and celebrate with us. Because there is only one thing that's required of a resur- when a resurrection happens. This brother of yours was lost and is found, was dead and is alive, and it was required that we celebrate that. When a dead man comes to life, you have to throw a party. And that's exactly what he did. And the story ends for us there. So why tell that story? You know, it's funny, when, it, when you're a Christian and you write a book about being dad, everybody sort of expects it to be a handbook on the daily life of a dad that's from the Proverbs or something like that. Well, in this situation, do this, but don't do that. In this situation, do that, but don't do this. And in this situation, the Proverbs say, do this, right? All law, all do this, not that. And as I studied the scriptures, I found that there's actually very little of that directly saying dads do this and not that. There's some, there's not much. The most extensive picture that we have of what it means to be a good dad is from the story of the prodigal son. Now, of course, the primary purpose of the story is to tell about the, the narrative of our salvation, right? That God loves us so much that he has so much grace on us that he's willing to save us even though we're miserable sinners like the younger son and the older son. That he'll give everything that he has for us, even kill his fattened calf for us. Of course, that's the, the, the point of the parable. But the, they don't just do one thing, guys. This also presents to us a picture of what, what it looks like to be the best dad, right? Because it's a picture of the Heavenly Father. When we do this, it's, we, we sometimes look at this, and I say in the book that I hear this story and I, I want to be the father in the parable, and I know I'm either the younger son or the older son or both wrapped in one. And I look around society. I'm probably the older one, actually. And I look around society and I ask a question that maybe you're asking. If this is the case, where are these men? Where are these men who react graciously and kindly and in a forgiving way in the face of sin? Where are these men that sit on the balcony waiting for their children. And I like to say, I actually think they're right in front of you. I think they're right in front of you. They're right in front of us. They're right in front of me. And we miss them. We miss them every day because they're hidden. They're hidden in a place we'd never think to look for them. They're hidden in our everyday lives. They're there. The Lutheran theologian Gerhard Ferdy um, was a Luther scholar. Um, And he, like Luther, was often accused of having no doctrine of sanctification or doctrine of good works in the Christian life, right? The answer of, I'm a Christian, now what do I have to do to be a Christian, right? So Luther is accused of not having a good answer to that. Ferdy is accused of not having a good answer to that. And Ferdy, at one point in his career, um, gets a little tired of the accusation and and answers it in a book called The More, More Radical Gospel. And this is what he says. He says, people who complain that Luther has no proper doctrine of good works and sanctification or ethics always seem to forget this understanding of the Christian's calling. Perhaps because it is so utterly realistic and unromantic. But virtually everything Luther wants to say about ethics comes back to his doctrine of vocation. One is to serve God in one's occupation and one's concrete daily life and its duties in the world. Ferdy, being a professor for 30 years, uh, relates this to students and the students that he has daily and says, when I tell students that this first of all means that they should pay attention to being better students, 
they are often a little disappointed. They had more romantic things in mind, like leading some protest, manning the barricades, joining in some romantic crusade or social action. He says it does not often occur to them that their first ethical duty is to be good students. Whatever call there might be for more extreme action, it must be remembered that Luther's idea is that first and foremost, one serves God by taking care of his creation. So where are these men? They're hidden in our everyday lives. They're hidden in the men who take their vocation of being a man and their vocation of being a father seriously. They're hidden in the men that just wake up every morning without a lot of um, uh, fanfare surrounding what they do and they get up, they stumble downstairs, they pour themselves a cup of coffee and then some Cheerios for the kids or another cup for their wife and they go on with their day. They're there, and we don't really acknowledge them for it. I like to say to these groups, if you don't know what I'm talking about, and if you don't have them in your lives, or if you know children that don't have them in their lives, or if they've died, or if they've left, or you feel disappointed because what you've done or you haven't done this, just know this. It's important for us to see these men, to find these men, it's important for all the reasons we started this lecture out with, all the statistics that I don't like going over, and it's important for, especially for the men and boys in our lives. And lest this become too legalistic for you, and I always fear that part, I like to answer the question that maybe is floating around in your mind, what about when or if I fail? That story of the prodigal son, after all, is an impossibility for any sinner like us to live up to. Anybody that's so bound to the law like we are to live up to, what if we fail? What if we can't be that dad? What if we resort to the punishment more often than we should? What if this message of grace just makes me mad and I don't want to hand it over all the time? What if we fail? I say to this to you, you will fail. I do daily. I wrote a book on it and I fail all the time. I like to tell the story that, um, and it's in the book, that one of the special things that I've done with my kids throughout their whole lives is taking them to movie releases. Like, it was a big deal to my kids that I was here on Thursday night when the Justice League movie came out because I didn't get to go to the, the premiere with them. They were actually very upset at me for that. Um, but one night, I think we were going to see, it wasn't too long ago, I think we were going to see like Suicide Squad premiere or something like that. And our sort of normal is we have all the kids over for dinner because they don't live with us. We have all the kids over for dinner. Joy makes a nice dinner. And then we head off to like a 7.30, 9 o'clock show, whatever, of the, the premiere and go see the movie together. And this one time, uh, Joy wasn't quite ready for dinner, to serve dinner yet. And when Caleb, that's my oldest son and his family came, Caleb was starving. And even though he's lived on his own for several years and paid his own rent and utilities for several years. When he got to my home, he sort of reverted to what it meant to be a kid in his dad's home. And because he was hungry, he stood and opened the fridge and just stood there and stared at it for to what to me seemed like an eternity. Right? And I'm sitting on the other end of the bar and I'm literally like got my watch going on him for how long my fridge has been open and just watching the quarters get pitched out of the fridge minute by minute. And I'm doing this... You know, and finally I say, Caleb, can you close the fridge? And he very calmly looks over at me and goes, Huh, Dr. Scott Keith, author of Being Dad, Picture of a Father, uh, a Father is a Picture of God's Grace, can't even handle his son having the fridge open for a few seconds. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> you will fail, I do daily. What do I say? Flee to Christ in those instances. You see, you can only forgive, you can only be gracious, you can only be kind, you can only be loving and strong because you stand in Christ and He has been all those things for you and has set you free. Since you are free, I like to say live freely as men who are not burdened by fear and doubt. Christ's forgiveness extends to Christians too and even Christian men like you even to failing men, failing fathers, and even to failing mothers, believe it or not. His forgiveness is never ending. Our forgiveness to others is merely a shadowy picture of his love for us. 
Men, I'm here today to tell you that you are free to be what God has already declared you are. Strong, capable, loving, gracious, kind, masculine. All of this because you are men who are forgiven on account of Christ Jesus alone. Say amen to that and we'll take maybe a quick five minute break. Come into the second session. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.